Hello, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Mike Masnick. The world is increasingly technological, so we have better get methodical. Bringing precision to critical digital journalism with the singular vision of the modern monocle. Stopping the copyright police from pulling the wall on us. Facing and taking on all the blatant hate and trolls. Document the ways that they aim to take control. Scrutinizing through their lies and make them fold. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get hurt. To grab a shovel and dig up the tech. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get Uh, first up, I want to say that uh, things have been a little bit busier than usual, uh, meaning that we skipped a few weeks of podcasts in November and actually are likely to do so again in December. Uh, but hopefully we'll get back uh, on a more regular schedule in the new year. So apologies about that. Uh, but just think of it as a chance to catch up on old episodes. Uh, we have uh, a bunch. I forget how many. Over 200. Uh, and so if you miss some of the early ones, they're probably still good. <laughs> I think they're still good. So uh, go back and take a listen and uh, we'll have more episodes. I think we'll, we'll hopefully have at least one more in December and then uh, we'll get back onto a regular schedule in January. Uh, but today on the podcast, we have a return guest, uh, Kashmir Hill, uh, now of the New York Times. Uh, earlier this year, we had her on the podcast to talk about her series of articles uh, that were in Gizmodo about cutting all of the big tech companies out of her life for a period of time. And now we have her on to talk about a recent article that she wrote for the New York Times uh, about your secret consumer score uh, for all of the talk that people like to have these days about the likes of Google and Facebook selling your data. Uh, there's often a, a lot more what I think of as sort of nefarious stuff happening in firms that no one has ever heard of, uh, various data brokers and the like. And what uh, Hill discovered is that a bunch of these uh, companies that specialize in scoring consumers for various things are now suddenly making at least some of that data available to you uh, in response mainly to California's new privacy law and a little bit in response to the GDPR in the EU. And so she was able to get some of the details on what these companies actually have on you. And it was fairly eye-opening, I think. So, uh, Cash, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks for having me back. So uh, most people don't, probably don't even know about most of these companies, I had never heard of any of the names that you mentioned in your article. Uh, and they're out there collecting all this data on you and sharing it with other companies and such. How did you even find out about them? Well, okay, well, how did I find out about them? There was a report from a consumer group, um, the Consumer Education Foundation, uh -huh. uh, that was prepared for the Federal Trade Commission, where they are asking the commission to kind of investigate this industry of, you know, shadowy, secretive um, consumer scoring companies. And they had gone through and named a bunch of the, of the companies. I think they named about 10 or 12 in the report. And um, they were mostly drawn from uh, really like past reporting about this industry. Hmm. And I was going through and reading it and I was wondering, how can I do something that's new or revelatory? about uh, this industry and what these companies do. And it clicked in my mind that we have these new kind of data transparency requirements as part of new privacy laws, the GDPR in Europe and um, the, consume, the California Consumer uh, Protection Act in California. And I said, I wonder if any of these companies are, you know, now sharing what they know about consumers with consumers. And so I just went through and tried to request my data. And, and so, 
just as background for people who, like me, didn't even realize these companies exist, what, what exactly do they do? Like, what is their purpose? So <clears throat> it's, it's very easy to call them consumer scoring uh, companies. Mm-hmm. That's kind of like a generic term that reporters and journalists have used to describe them. But each company kind of does something a little different. Some are some are uh, in the business of trying to identify fraudulent transaction, transactions or um, kind of like bad users. And so mm-hmm. they do kind of safety and trust and kind of risk scoring. There are other companies that will score how valuable a customer is, how much money a consumer would potentially spend with your company. So basically saying, this is a really good customer. You should treat them really well. Or, you know, you don't really need to prioritize this person. So the example that a lot of journalists have given is that this score can determine when you call a 1-800 line, whether you very quickly get to a human being or whether (laughs) you're kind of stuck pressing 0, 3, 1, um, and talking to a series of robots. Uh, and so, yeah, it really varies. Uh, there were some um, scoring companies listed in this report that score, you know, uh, employees for uh, applicants for jobs, uh, potential renters for landlords. There's kind of all kinds of different ways of scoring or, or labeling people as, you know, basically valuable or or, or not. Or not. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> wow, that'd be interesting. I, I it, it, it gives me this idea that you know the whole like you know, dialing a one eight hundred number and and seeing if you can actually get to a human and and how important they think your call is. Uh, you could almost see a, a world in which you know if you could find out the the good <laughs> the people with the good scores and you could you know spoof <laughs> their phone numbers just to get <laughs> those are the identities to steal <laughs> right exactly you know not not for not for nefarious purposes but just to, just to actually get a human being on the line that would be just kind to of change fun. your flight yeah, to see how the other half lives <laughs> wow that's interesting so um uh, so, and so what did you find out when, when you, cause you, you approached a bunch of these companies, uh, under these, these data transparency, data privacy laws, data protection laws, whatever you want to call them and tried to get your, your data from them. And, and what did you find out? <laughs> so, uh, one thing I learned is just that these privacy laws in Europe and California are having trickle down effects for other consumers. Um, because even though I lived in New York, uh, some of the companies that are doing this, you know, basically respected my request and sent me my data, even though they're not legally required to do so. Um, in and, part and, because, and even the California law hasn't come into effect yet, so they're doing it before yeah. they have to. Yeah, they only it, um, it, it doesn't go into effect until January 1st. And I was really catching these companies at a point where they had just set up these processes. Hmm. Um, most of the companies had only recently started doing this, with the exception of Retail Equation, which is a company that determines whether you're allowed to make returns or not. Oh, wow. Um, <clears throat> they work for like Victoria's Secret and Best Buy. And yeah, they just keep track of all the returns you make. Huh. Uh, and so if you've That's... ever gone in somewhere and no. they said, sorry, you can't return that thing. Uh, this is the company. This wow. might be the company responsible for making that call. That's, that's kind of fascinating yeah. in its own way. <laughs> Isn't it? And then people are very upset when they can't make a return. Yeah. So this company has uh, been giving reports to people for about a decade. Oh, uh, wow. But most of the other ones had only set up their processes in the last couple months. Um, and so I found that like some companies were were kind of gave me the runaround and made it really difficult and you know said they 
didn't have data on me or I, they did have data, but they were data processors and I had to go directly to the companies that held my data to get my data. But other companies were really forthcoming, particularly a company called SIFT. Um, and SIFT is one of the fraud and trust scoring companies. They mm-hmm. work for uh, like Airbnb, Yelp, uh, Coinbase to try to determine whether uh, basically a transaction should go through. They're looking at whether something's fraudulent or whether it's abuse. Um, and they sent me a 400 page report, uh, which was insane. And I did not expect to get something like this when I, when I started out with this experiment. Yeah. And, uh, and, and, uh, like, so, so what was in, I mean, 400 pages, that's a lot of information. What, what was in there? So it had, um, the first thing I saw is that it had my Yelp orders going back <laughs> three years. So it was like, oh, April, a Saturday night in April 2016, you ordered Sog Paneer and garlic <laughs> naan and veggie samosas from this Indian restaurant, um, which was weird. I just didn't realize that right. everyone was keeping that data. Um, it had every time I had opened Coinbase, um, you know, what device I had opened it on. Yeah. It had, um, for all of these transactions, it had information about the device I used, you know, what the screen size was, what the operating system was. Um, and uh, it had all of my, the thing that really shocked me was it had all of my Airbnb messages that I had sent to host mm. going back years. And I just had n- no idea that anybody beyond Airbnb Right. They have those messages. Um, so that was really surprising to me. And there's there's kind of like sensitive data in there where you talk about your, you know, your family needs um, and your, your, your discontent with, with certain hosts. Right. Uh, so that was kind of the most sensitive thing in there. And then each of the transactions, not all of the transactions, but a lot of the entries in the file were scored. Um, so it had like uh, a percentage rating of whether it was likely to be fraud or not oh. fraud abuse or not abuse, account takeover or not account takeover. So this was like the, the, the true, this was the only data I got back where there was actual scores in the data. Yeah, I, I, I was wondering about that because to me that's, you know, I mean, some of the, you know, what they have is eye-opening, but um, I, I'm intrigued by what my actual scores would be. Um, I mean, was there anything in there that, that surprised you? Was there anything that, that indicated that, something you had done legitimately was, was deemed questionable. Um, I, I, I tried to go through, it was, it was honestly hard. The, the form that uh-huh. the format that it came in and the volume of data, I couldn't look over every single score that I had received, but you know, as I went through, it looked like um, all of my scores were, were positive. You know, even when I was <laughs> the most embarrassing one was uh, last Thanksgiving, I stayed in Airbnb that I was very dissatisfied with. And I was just constantly <laughs> sending the host um, complaints about the property, even huh. on Thanksgiving Day, which I then realized and was like, oh, I'm so sorry to be, you know, sending you my list of grievances on right. the day devoted to gratitude. But um, even that <laughs> <laughs> even even that was scored as high and that sifted determined it was, you know, basically really me um, right. sending these messages. Wow. Um, and... Yeah. I mean, it's, it's interesting to me. I mean, and and you mentioned that you didn't have any idea that anyone else would see these messages and I'm thinking the same thing. I mean, you know, uh, 
when when you sign up for one of these services, um, you know, you don't realize that they're passing this data on to these other companies, which is feels a little creepy. Yeah, and I, you know, I talked to Sift, and I, I have to say, I mean, they've gotten kind of the, I guess, the worst of the backlash from uh-huh. from the article, just because they did send me so much data and had uh, surprising and kind of sensitive data. But you know, they did tell me very explicitly, we don't sell this to anybody. You know, we're processing this data on these companies. Yeah. That have. The, so and, that. I, so, sorry, I, I mean, I was going to ask about that. Like, so, so. So SIFT gets the data, but they don't pass it on to anyone. They, the only thing they pass is a score back to the – so like if they're looking over that Airbnb data and just passing a score back to Airbnb and that's the extent of it or – Yeah, and they said like we don't make the decision. We're just sending the data back to Airbnb and mm. it lets Airbnb know if they should look at a transaction more closely. Um, and so they said you know, we're not making the decision, but they are providing a score, which is a, you know, a yeah. kind of decision. Um, and the only way that I guess the data kind of uh, passes over a line is that they do kind of use what they know about uh, devices and people from across their different clients, right? Oh. So, if they, so if they see a, you know, a phone being used on Yelp to place a bunch of fraudulent orders, if that phone shows up on Airbnb, they do have some data already about that phone or that IP right. address or, you know, whatever it else they're using right. to and that, judge a person. Right. So that could be concerning, you know, for, for a variety of reasons. The fact that, that your experiences in one place, say, you know, you did have a really bad Airbnb experience and sort of meltdown there. The idea that that would then impact your ability to order from Yelp seems odd, right? Right, right, right. So I think it'd be more likely, you know, basically you, you used a stolen credit card on sure. Yelp. When you tried to book an Airbnb, you might right. not be able to which, do so. Which, in that in that scenario, feels a lot more legitimate, right? I mean, and and you actually see the the potential benefits of this kind of setup, where you know the idea that um, you know if you're caught doing something fraudulent on one platform, the idea that that would spread to other platforms actually feels like a good thing, right? Yeah, uh, that's that's. Very interesting. Did you get any insight into the algorithm by which like SIFT or any of these other ones actually score the data or is that is that not there? No, really the closest I came to that was seeing SIFT scores. They don't, I think one of the bigger problems with the data transparency, the data request model is that most of the time they're just going to kind of spit data back to you uh-huh. and they don't necessarily tell you, you know, what decisions they made based on that data or how they reach those decisions. So retail equation, for example, if you go to a Best Buy and you're trying to return this, like, uh, I don't know, DVD player or whatever, if people buy it at Best Buy right. and they say no, and then they say, you know, if you want to know more about why you can't make this return, they'll give you like a little receipt with a retail equations, oh. 1-800 line and the transaction number. And you call retail equation and say, hey, why wasn't I able to you know, return this to Best Buy? They'll just send you a report that has all the returns you've ever made that they've tracked. <laughs> and they won't tell you why they've decided you can't return this thing to Best Buy. So huh. so that part of it is, I think, pretty frustrating for consumers. Even though there's transparency, it's not a right. true transparency where they're explaining how they reached a decision about you. Right, right. It's There's sort of – there's half transparency. I mean I'm surprised that they even reveal – 
that you know that there's this other company that's that's making that judgment and that they'll send you that information you know i i I had kind of in my head assumed that they just didn't even tell you that you didn't even know that it was some other company that there was that or even that there was a reason why you couldn't return something but that's interesting that they reveal that but you're right that then that still becomes very frustrating because they still don't explain actually how they came to that conclusion and and I know that there are some you know there are some proposals for laws now um, I don't know how much of a chance any of them have but for like more algorithmic transparency too and I could see if any of those became law that then these companies would have to reveal at least something about the the scoring process um, which which would be interesting as well um, it it it's one of the things that struck me as interesting about the article. I mean, a lot of it does focus, as you mentioned, on on SIFT, this one company that gave you so much information back. Um, and I'm, I guess, I'm not surprised um, that that company is is in for has has come in for criticism because of it. But but you know, it did strike me in reading that article that like the company was very straightforward with you. Um, that they did give you all this information. They explained every, you know pretty much everything about why they had it and how they're using it, and they didn't seem. You know, I actually appreciated in reading the article. I think, like, I went through this you know, semi roller coaster ride of like, <laughs> oh wow, you know, wow, I'm surprised that Airbnb would share, you know, uh, messaging with this other company. Um, but I w- then sort of appreciated the way, um, you know, SIFT was very open with you in in talking to you and explaining how this was used, and they didn't seem defensive at all. I don't know if, if, if maybe that's just my read on the article. I don't know if you felt that they were more defensive, um, but it felt like some other companies were um, a lot more defensive. At least, you know, at least that was the impression I got from the article. Is that is was that your experience as well? Yeah, no, that's absolutely accurate. I'm glad it comes across. They. SIFT was very, well, the funny thing with SIFT was, um, so I, so I made these data requests and basically all the companies told me, you know, we've basically gotten none of these data requests. We've gotten maybe five or 10, a Uh handful. And so when I made my data request to SIFT, the CEO, um, actually responded to me after the company had sent my file and was like, Hey, and I'd done this with my personal email address, not with my New York times Uh address. And he reached out and was just like, hey, just wanted to see if you had any questions about your report oh, wow. or, you know, if you want to talk about privacy. Um, and so I gave him a call and I said, so do you do that for everybody who makes a data <laughs> request or did you discover a reporter for the New York Times? And he said, you know, there are people had, you know, looked, looked, looked me up um, and figured out I was a reporter. <laughs> so it does seem like they're quite good at their jobs in terms of doing background checks on yeah. people. Uh, but yeah, they were very transparent all along the way and um, uh, pretty upfront about, you know, just why they're collecting the data and that they, yeah, that they, they, they don't want to be, have, uh, have their company perceived as something nefarious. Right. But the other companies were very evasive, very defensive. Um, you know, a lot of them are trying to basically come up with ways that I think they don't have to comply with the data request mm-hmm. um, by kind of shifting the burden rather to the companies uh, that they are providing services for. So Customer Inc., for example, said, you know, we're just a database company. We're like a sales force. And so it's not our you know, responsibility to give you the data that, that companies are storing with us, you should be going to those companies directly. Right. But, but how are you even supposed to know? You know, they're not, they're not giving me a list of the companies whose 
data about me. They hold. So it was just was a kind of like more frustrating process with other companies compared to SIFT. Yeah. And, and this goes beyond just, just this scenario. I mean, you know, like the GDPR in particular, right, they define different classes of, of companies and there's like data processors and data controllers. Um, and the data controllers the, are the ones that are supposed to reveal what data they have on you, not the data processors. But but nobody's entirely clear over who's actually who. And there's actually, this is a, a bigger deal in that there's a lot of finger pointing that goes on um, where, you know, companies that you, you think probably really should be classified as data controllers are like, no, we're just data processors. You need to make the request from this other company. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I've, I think that's a way that a lot of companies are sort of trying to you know, effectively pass the buck um, when they receive these kinds of requests. Uh, and it sounds like that's definitely what happened with some of the companies that you spoke to. And I think SIFT could have done that, right? They could have said, we're just a data processor, we're not a data controller. But this was very revelatory to me to see just how much data, you know, when, when you're reading these companies' privacy policies, and they say, oh, you know, we use third parties to assess, you know, risk and fraud and da-da-da. What that really means is, there's this third-party company you've never heard of right. that have all the messages that you've sent on Airbnb. I mean, that is um, that is something I feel that consumers should should know. Um, just because it it means that your data is resting, sensitive data is resting with other companies, and it kind of broadens the attack surface in yeah. terms of how your data could be compromised. Yeah, totally right. And and like you know, you you might not even know that. And, and I think you know. When I whenever I've seen within the terms of service, uh, and I actually at least try to skim most of the terms of services that I agree to, um, you know, when they say you know data may be shared for things like this, I, I I tend to expect it to be more just like you know IP address and phone number or or you know things like that, not like the contents of my you know private messages or whatever. Um, right. And so I, that part I definitely did find surprising. Um, and it does it does make you wonder. It's like, okay, you know, even if I believe like not that I'm posting that much sensitive stuff to Airbnb messages, but maybe. Right. I mean, there are certainly cases where that would be um, where you might. And, and, you know, you can think that maybe Airbnb can protect this data. But, you know, how well will some third party company that you don't even know has access to the data? How will they protect it? And I think um, – that's that's definitely uh, a concern that's that's raised by the article. Um, so since you wrote about this in the New York Times and you sort of explained to people how they can get their data as well, do you know? I assume that that all these companies that were saying like you were one of the first or you know single digit number of people had requested their data. I assume that many of them may have since been deluged with <laughs> more requests. Have yeah. you heard anything about that? <laughs> Yeah, I'm working on a follow-up piece about that. As Sif told me on that first day uh, after the article was published by lunchtime, they already had over 8,000 oh, requests for data. Um, and I know they've had to hire a third party now to help them process the data request. Huh. They, yeah, it was, um, <clears throat> I think a lot of the companies were kind of underwater just trying to respond to this. Because, you know, most people didn't know this was an option, that this was something they could do. Um, and, and I kind of feel bad for the companies that get caught out in the article because there are, you know, dozens, if not hundreds of more companies that are kind of in this industry. Um, and we just, we don't know who they are. I mean, right. they're 
as far as I know, there's not a directory of these companies yet. Though I think that might be part of California's privacy law right. that data brokers um, need to be part of a directory. Uh, but yeah, I, I do know these companies were were very overwhelmed by the response. Yeah, I mean, I kind of feel like, you know, um, that would be an interesting thing. Uh, you know, on the on the side of the consumer facing companies, you know, I would like to know who it is that Airbnb is sharing data with. And even if it's for legitimate purposes, and I, I think like, it sounds like, you know, it's use of SIFT or whatever, there's, there's a legitimate rationale there. And, and, and I can understand that. But um, the fact that, you know, you don't know which data it is, and, and, and who it is that they're sharing with that, that seems like the, the thing that was most eye opening to me, and the thing that, um, you know, made me most interested in, in how these things work. And yet there's, there, there, there's really no way to know right now. But, um, you know, it would be interesting if under, under California's law, which I, I mean, I, I think there are lots of problems with the law. And I've talked about that in the past. Um, but it, it, it sounds like it certainly could be a potentially useful thing if they had to at least reveal who they're sharing the data with and which, which, which data that is. Yeah, I mean, I think it would be interesting to be able to <clears throat> figure out just, you know, all the companies that you interact with mm -hmm. um, directly what other companies they pass your data along. If you could kind of map it out and see, oh, wow, like there's a company like SIF, there's a company like this that's uh, getting my data from five different companies and just, just getting a sense of the flow of data through this, what is otherwise kind of this black box of, yeah. of data brokers. Um, I know that's kind of what CCPA is, is trying to do. Uh, or was originally, you know, when it was the ballot initiative. Now I think right. they don't, companies don't have to tell you exactly who they pass your data along to. They just have uh, to give you categories of companies right. that they've passed it to. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it does raise other issues, right? I mean, and this has been the concern with data brokers in the past and, and like credit scoring companies too, which are, are you know, a related class of, of companies in that they have a lot of information on you that they may not reveal. And they're scoring it in some way or another, and that can have significant impacts on your life. I mean, I think most people certainly understand credit scoring, but it's, it, it sounds very, very similar to this, but there are also all of these different stories of how those companies, you know, get it wrong, you know, have, have, uh, you know, either incorrect or outdated information and those decisions are then impacting your lives. Um, and here it is, you know, you have that same thing. The, the black box concern seems pretty legitimate um you know and it sounds like you know they you know had you didn't have any problems with the information that they they had in terms of they were scoring you as a legitimate person but you could see where somebody could get caught up in this and suddenly be getting you know services rejected all over the place and not having any idea why or how to find out about it uh, and that part definitely seems concerning yeah, one example that stayed with me from the Wall Street Journal did a great series um, of articles on these kind of scoring companies, and they had one that was focused on retail equation. And there was a person who had bought um, like cell phone covers for him for his grandchildren, and he bought them in a whole bunch of different colors so that you know each grandchild could choose the color they wanted. And then he went to return them, and they said no. And he like went to retail equation and asked for his report and it, it, you know, it didn't have a bunch of, 
it didn't have a bunch of returns. It was very unclear why huh. it was that he had been flagged as a kind of like a fraudulent returner. And as far as I know, it doesn't seem like there's any way to really challenge that decision being made about you. And yeah, anyways, it, it didn't seem like a huge monetary loss. I don't know how much the cell phone covers are, but or the right. smartphone covers are, but it still was just, you know, just that frustration when they're, uh, when you, you've been deemed a bad consumer and you have no idea why. It's, it's very frustrating. Right, right. I mean, you know, at the same time, you can certainly see, you know, and this is like the tricky thing with, with almost everything, right? Where it's like, you can totally understand why it makes sense for companies to try and, you know, find and, and root out those who actually are trying to, to defraud the company in some way or another. Um, and, and you can see how that benefits the people who are legitimate also. So there, there's like this weird balancing act that, that has to go on. Um, and you know, it's, it's kind of akin to the, the whole like content moderation question that, that, you know, social media companies deal with in terms of, you know, how do you deal with the bad actors? How do you determine who is a bad actor and who's actually mm -hmm. acting legitimate? Um, it's it's that that's all fascinating to me. <laughs> you know, I've spent so much time thinking about that, um, but this is really the, the same issue. It's just that it's even more secretive, and, and there are many other layers going into this, and, and and no way to to figure out. You don't even know who to blame. You know, with a social media company, you at least you know for better or for worse, you can blame the the company. Um, whereas here, it's you know who knows, and you don't know why, and you don't get any information. Um, one, one of the companies I talked to that was fascinating, a company called Riskified, that again does this kind of fraud scoring. They didn't have any data on me. Um, mm -hmm. They did have data. I, I invited the, um, the woman who wrote the complaint to the FTC about these, um, about these companies, this industry. I said, oh, you should request your data too. And they sent her a Microsoft Excel sheet that had like records of a transaction, like her email address, her, her home address, but it was unclear, you know, what she'd bought or where she had bought it. And Riskify told me, oh, you know, we, we basically don't have permission to disclose that data about our customers. So we're, huh. we're telling her what we can tell her, whereas SIFT had written into their um, contracts with companies that they have the right to disclose this data. But Riskify's model was really fascinating to me because they – uh, they guarantee to a company whether a transaction is fraudulent or not. And so there the company kind of determines whether it can go through. And if it goes, if they let it go through and it turns out to be fraudulent, they're on the hook for the amount of money that was huh. spent. So if somebody uh -huh. spends $30,000 on a boat and it turns out to be a fraudulent transaction and Riskified said it was fine, they actually pay the $30,000 to the company. Oh, wow. Uh, and they other, yeah, and they otherwise get a cut of every right. legitimate transaction that they put through. But they said, you know, we're, you know, we are doing scoring in a way, but we, we don't, you know, we don't want to prevent people from being able to buy things. We, you know, it's good for our business. It's good for our our clients to allow people to buy things. Right. We're just trying to weed out the bad actors. Yeah. I but mean, yeah, the problem is just when you, you know, misidentify a good actor as a bad actor. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's interesting, you know, a, a kind of smart aligning of incentives that way. That, uh, that's kind of fascinating. You can see why why companies would actually like that. Um, right. You know, it's it, uh, as effectively an insurance <laughs> policy yeah. against fraud, um, but also also doing fraud limiting at the same time. Um, 
That, that's fascinating. So, so beyond those, I mean, you talked about how SIFT reacted and how this company reacted. Um, did other companies, you know, when other companies found out that you were a reporter working on this article, how did they react? There were definitely some companies that were very defensive, um, did not like the premise kind mm-hmm. of, of the story. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that, that Some that don't want to be labeled as a a scoring company, you know, Uh that, uh, that they are not the ones making decisions about people, um, that they're just storing the data. Um, yeah, there was kind of like a a wide range, but yeah, some companies were, um, even from the very beginning when I was asking the easy questions were kind of incredibly defensive. And I was like, wow, this is, this is the easy part. Um, one of the frustrations was just that, I mean, a lot of the companies have just set this process up and they, don't totally um, have it worked out yet. So right. one of the companies, a company called Zeta Global, sent me back um, sent me back all the comments that I had made on Above the Law uh, like huh. ten years ago because it, I guess they had bought Discus, oh. which was the commenting platform that we use. So yeah, they yeah. Just had all of my blog comments along with my IP address. But they also are in the business of of um, yeah, determining, determining customer value. And they huh. didn't send me any of that data. And it turned out that they're kind of still setting up that part of the platform. But they also said, oh, this isn't data about individuals. This is about, you know, segments of consumers. But I'm like, but I as an individual am part of a segment. So I'd like to know, right. you know basically what segments you have me in. And we kind of had a back and forth about whether that is data that's attached to me in the system. Huh. Uh, anyway, so I don't, I don't know what they'll eventually send consumers when they get everything all worked out. But um, yeah, it was, it was kind of a confusing back and forth with them. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's fascinating. It's, it's also fascinating that they, that they apparently bought uh, Discus or Discuss. I don't even know how you pronounce that. Oh yeah. I don't know either. It's probably Discuss. Yeah. That's what I thought, but I, I, I don't know. Um, Cause I, they were like the commenting platform that lots of, lots of sites and uh, used and the idea that then they would get sold to a company that scores your, your, you know, worthiness. <laughs> it's interesting, right? Yeah. And the comments were embarrassing. I mean, above the law was a more raucous place certainly than New York times. So some of my comments are, yeah. I was like, Oh, this is kind of strange that this is attached to me forever in a company that does this kind of scoring of consumers. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That's, that's really, um, interesting. Cause I, I didn't, I, I mean, I, I knew they were around for a long time. Um, and I remember when they had first launched, they had actually reached out to me just to talk about, about comments because we had, you know, TechDirt had been a, a pretty long running blog at that point and had, uh, you know, pretty active comment space. And so I just had a discussion with them not to use them because we were perfectly happy with our own setup, but just about like how blog comments work and, and features and, and stuff like that. Um, and then suddenly, you know, I saw them grow and were on all sorts of blogs. And then I had kind of forgotten about them <laughs> uh, and, and certainly didn't realize that they had been sold to this other company, which is. Well, I guess, I guess you saved all tech dirt commenters from being a, yes. a data broker. Yeah, yeah. We we do not pass on our commenting information to <laughs> to 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 anyone. So wow, that's I'm 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 fascinated by this whole sort of you know hidden hidden economy of data. Um, it's 
it's really really interesting and i can't decide like there there is this element of of it that that creeps me out a little bit which i think a lot of people feel um and and certainly seem to be a lot of the reaction i saw to your article um but there's also a part of me that's like it's really interesting and, and sort of the the neat ways in which that information is used i mean i think the the sort of fraud fraud scoring stuff is really interesting um but still again yeah concerned about the black box nature of it so yeah th this whole Space is really interesting. <laughs> <laughs> but that was one of the frustrating ones, right? Because they sent me back, okay, here's all your comments on the blog. Right. I'm not really worried about that data. That's public data. Right. If you went to Above the Law, you could see those comments as well. Sure. But they didn't tell me how they're using them. So yeah. how is how are they using that to judge me if they are? Right. And that's the kind of data that's missing right now in these, in these data transparency. Um, right. R reports that you can get from the company. Yeah, I mean, can you imagine like, you know, not being able to reach a human being on a one eight hundred line because of a comment you wrote ten years ago <laughs> <laughs> in some in some sort of you know angry internet uh, troll fight? <laughs> this is the uh, this is where I feel like uh, this area of reporting is just uh, it's almost science fiction dystopia. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's uh, my mind was going to like you could totally turn this into a science fiction story very very quickly, uh, and it could get pretty dark. <laughs> 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 that's 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 really uh it's it's incredible i mean it's really interesting um and uh i know you said you're working on a follow-up uh and and is there anything you can tell us about the follow-up or do we need to wait <laughs> well um a lot of people so i invited i included my email address um and invited people who read the story to reach out to me if they got anything weird in their um in their kind of data reports and a lot of people reached out to me and mostly to you know let me know if they'd filed a request and you know uh the responses they had gotten from the the companies uh, but a lot of people were complaining because sift because they got so many requests you know needed to hire a third party to do identity ver verification mm -hmm. and so you know in when i did my request, I had to send a copy of my, a picture of my driver's license. And now this third party company asked for a copy of the driver's license and the back of the driver's license. And you have to take a selfie. Then you have to take a second selfie. Huh. And a lot of people are very upset about this, that they were, you know, they're trying to get data from a company that where they feel disturbed the company of... has that data. And now they have to hand over more data. So yeah. I kind of just wanted to do a follow up to explain you know, why that's, why that's happening. Yeah, no, I mean, and, and that's an interesting element in its own way, because like the, 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 you know, identity verification part is a big deal, because otherwise anyone else could go in and get all, all, all of your data. And so, you know, we've reported a few times exactly. on, on how like, some of these privacy laws are actually opening up a new sort of attack vector on your privacy, because if somebody else can, can adequately uh, impersonate you in terms of the request for data, they can get access to a huge amount of data. And there have been a few stories of that happening. Um, right. and, and that's concerning. But then of course, there's also the issue of like, well, this, this third party verification company, what are they doing with your data? Right. right. <laughs> <laughs> so, it's extending that trail of data brokers. Yeah. But yeah. I mean, security researchers have been able to um, yeah, have been able to kind of uh, free data through this process um, about, you know, other people. And so that's definitely a concern. I wouldn't want someone else to be able to get my 400 page file from SIFT. Right. Uh, yeah. 
Because then they know, you know, where I like to order my Indian food. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. And, and I mean, yeah, I mean, we joke, but obviously there could be a lot more sensitive information in there or, or even some of that Definitely. information that might might not seem, you know, or may, may feel sort of innocuous, you know, in certain hands could become a lot more... Uh, problematic. I mean, you could definitely see in cases where people are trying to do like, you know, spearfishing stuff where if they have enough information about you and your habits and things that you've done, they could, you know, whether it's like impersonating somebody from Airbnb to try and get, you know, something else from you or, um, or other stuff that that's, that's a huge and very realistic concern. Uh, right. That. And a lot of these companies, they don't, they just don't have experience with this and they're just setting up these systems for the first time right. and they're not really thinking through those, those security risks. Um, yeah. And we've even seen that. It was it, it was Amazon, right? That sent somebody's Alexa yep. recordings to the wrong yep. person. And yeah. yeah, I would expect a company like Amazon to have a better process in, in place than that. Yeah. Yeah. As opposed to these, these smaller companies that nobody's ever heard of. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, um, yeah. So, I mean, it seems like, you know, so I, yeah, I'm some somewhat fascinated by that aspect as well and sort of how, it, it, you know, these new privacy laws, while in some sense giving more transparency and, and in theory protecting your privacy are also opening up new potentially, you know, privacy violating uh, vectors as well. Um it's uh, <laughs> you will have plenty to report about <laughs> for, for <laughs> however long you choose to stay on this beat. <laughs> the endless data broker beat. Yeah, yeah. No, it's it's it's. This is really fascinating. The article is really fascinating. I'm I'm excited to see the follow up and 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 certainly any other reporting you do on this subject. It's it's a, a really interesting topic um that is both scary and and eye-opening at the same time um and so it's it you know as always uh you know really great work and and i appreciate all the the uh the stories that you find and, and work on are always you know some of the most um most worthwhile and interesting stories around you know privacy and, and related subjects so uh, I, I i really appreciate that and 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 uh, appreciate you taking the time to come on the podcast it was my pleasure. And uh, also appreciate everyone listening. So <laughs> thank you for <laughs> listening. Uh, and as I said, we'll be back probably not next week, uh, but hopefully soon after. And by January, should hopefully be back on a regular schedule. Uh, but thanks for listening either way. And uh, Cash, once again, thanks for joining us. Yes. Uh, to grab a shovel and pick up the cat. Uh, if we don't stand up to them, someone will get.